Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the Resilience Advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly SLO and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 12, Systems of Resilience. Ooh, I like the way that sounds. We talked about the benefits of resilience throughout the series, but it seems as if a lot of people are still not hearing the message. Is there a way to educate people about the elements that go into the system of resilience? Well, that's really the heart of the whole subject, Audrey. This isn't just about making buildings resilient. It's about all of the other impacts that resilience can have. Let's look into Henry Burton's interview. He's a professor at UCLA. He teaches students about the benefits of different interventions that enhance seismic resilience by taking a systems-based approach. Henry Burton. So my name is Henry Burton. I'm an associate professor of structural engineering at UCLA. He is an associate professor of structural engineering at UCLA. He teaches structural design and analysis and is developing models to understand the benefits of different interventions that are designed to enhance seismic resilience. Henry, do you specialize in the study of retrofitting existing buildings or designing new resilient buildings? Yeah, that's a great question. So the thing about our models is that we simulate not just the immediate impact of the earthquake, but also we model the ensuing recovery. So what that does, it allows you to look at different types of intervention. Can you expand on that? What kind of intervention would you look at? We can look at the effect of things that are done before an event, like retrofit, like new design, or we can look at things that are are done after events. So, for example, putting policies in place to ensure that people can get uh, access to financing, um, the process of inspecting buildings, getting permits, things like that. We can also investigate those types of interventions. Wow. So a little bit of everything. How do you personally feel about seismic risk, especially since you live in California? Yeah, so we live in California, so we live in earthquake country. And so obviously we have to be thinking about seismic risk. And so as a country, the U.S. has generally done a really good job in in ensuring that the buildings that are developed, at least the modern ones, are safe against earthquakes, meaning that when an earthquake happens, we allow people to get out safely. Um, where we need to do a little bit more work is to think about what happens after the earthquake, meaning is the building usable after the earthquake? Is the, is the building even repairable? Um, so that's where the concept of resilience comes in. So if you think about the fact that our building codes target safety after an event, what you can happen is if you think about an, a residential community, um, if a large swath of those buildings are not uh, habitable after an earthquake, that could actually result in a housing shortage, right? And then you have to start thinking about things like temporary housing, which could really put a strain on the economic well-being of a community. 
On the topic of economy and finances, how do the costs compare to the benefits of having a more resilient building? So one of the things that we do is we actually look at that issue very, very carefully, meaning we do actual cost-benefit analysis. So for example, uh, we've done a cost-benefit analysis of the Los Angeles soft story ordinance, where we looked at sort of the range of costs that it would take to retrofit these soft story buildings. And then we looked over the remaining life of the building to quantify the benefit that would result from the reduction in damage and losses that come from an earthquake. So how does choosing resilience from the beginning of the design process or choosing to retrofit financially benefit the landlord as compared to trying to recover and rebuild after a disaster strikes? What we were able to show is that on average, there's a three to one ratio in terms of benefits to cost. And um, it's, it's interesting that that three to one uh, benefit to cost is about uh, the same as what's been found in other national studies that looked at other hazards behind besides earthquakes. Now, something that our study did not look at is, you know, other types of socioeconomic benefits that even though we did not quantify it, it's something that you have to think about, right? So again, a lot of these soft story buildings are residential buildings. So you have to think about the benefit to a community where there's a lower reduction in housing shortage after event. Absolutely. The socioeconomic status of the community definitely plays a role in the recovery phase. Tell me how else this can impact the resilience of the community. So you can take the example of someone who lives in a community, they have a new building. After the earthquake, their building is pristine, but maybe on their block, they're the only building that actually performs well during the earthquake. Well, is that building resilient? You know, that's something that we have to think about. I think we have to think about resilience as sort of a cooperative type of effort where we not only think about what's happening within our own building footprint, but the community in general. How about the potential in terms of recovery of housing after an earthquake? So we looked at several neighborhoods. Uh, one of the neighborhoods we looked at was uh, Koreatown. So Koreatown is one of the neighborhoods in, in Southern California that has a fairly high number of these soft story buildings. I think approximately 30% of the multifamily residential buildings are have soft story. So one of the things we were able to do is we say, okay, we can quantify the benefit in terms of reduction in damage, right? So we can look at the extent to which different buildings are damaged, and we can look at how much that is reduced by by the retrofit, right? So we did that. Right. So we can compare the amount of damage per building. This will help us visualize the benefits and costs of each scenario. What other impacts can be measured against the investment of retrofit or mitigation? The other thing we did is we say, well, let's look at the benefit in terms of occupancy. So there's the building, which we can quantify. We can count up how many buildings are impacted and, and, and sort of the difference in impact. But more importantly, we were able to quantify the impact on occupancy, meaning the reduction in the loss of occupancy after an earthquake. And what we were able to show is while you get a certain benefit in terms of reduction in damage, that benefit is actually amplified when you look at occupancy, because again, these are multifamily buildings. Um, Koreatown, you know, it's a, it's a fairly dense neighborhood. Um, so for that reason, when you look at relative damage versus uh, occupancy, it's not really linear. There's sort of an amplification of benefit that happens there. 
I've been to Koreatown in Los Angeles many times and noticed that there are a lot of buildings. Whether it's business buildings or homes and apartments, they all seem to be pretty old structures. Older structures tend to have basements that house the MEP systems as well. Isn't this a hazard? Absolutely. So that's a great question. So we've talked about the fact that safety, it's important, but it's not enough. So we want to go beyond safety. We want to think about functionality. So if you're talking again, going back to a residential building, uh, people obviously rely on having a space, meaning that the building is standing up, but they also rely on different services, different utilities that are within the building. So they rely on water, power, um, uh, gas, things like that. So it's very important that any type of seismic mitigation measures that we address, if resilience is our goal, has to not only focus on the structure itself, um, but these important non-structural components, especially the ones that are tied to utilities. Um, because again, when it comes to this decision about do I leave my home either temporarily or permanently uh, after an earthquake, we know from the empirical literature that that's actually one of the things that drives that decision. How long is my water going to be out? How long is my power going to be out? And so forth. Um, so you're absolutely right. I think we do need to be thinking about these other aspects of the building that are tied to the services that the building provides. Stepping into the resident's shoes, I would be discouraged if my home was destroyed by a disaster, or if the utilities were compromised, or if the period of recovery and repair would keep me out of my home for a long time. I may even consider moving out to another city. I could imagine that a lot of other people would be thinking the same thing. This is what Patrick Odellini talked about in a previous episode of ours, episode 3. He said that the goal in San Francisco is to have a 95% occupancy after an earthquake. Has your research shown a tipping point for occupancy? That's actually a great point. So, so, so when you talk about people potentially leaving, that's a decision, right? And there are a lot of different factors that influence that decision. And one of the things we actually did in one of our studies is we did this survey to try to get a sense of what actually influences those decisions to leave or not, right? So, so you mentioned this 95% number um, in terms of maintaining 95% occupancy. Well, a reason for targeting that is, um, and this came out of our survey, is that as the percentage of homes that are not occupied increase in a particular neighborhood, just purely from a decision standpoint, meaning regardless of whether or not your, your own building is usable, there's a higher likelihood that you're actually going to leave the neighborhood as the percentage of abandoned houses increase. What kind of incentives can cities offer to homeowners or to owners of multifamily apartments to encourage them to make their buildings more resilient? That's a great question. So, um, so in terms of incentives, you know, again, going back to this idea of retrofits, especially the ones that are mandated, right? So there's a cost to these retrofits. And if we're talking about uh, multifamily residential buildings, then there's a question of, does the landlord sort of absorb the cost or do they pass it on to their tenants, right? So, th so there's sort of a social um, impact there. So in order to offset that, there's different things that different governing bodies can do. That is such a good point. Who ultimately should cover the costs? Is it solely the responsibility of the landlords or should the tenants chip in? And if the investment in mitigation prevents financial harm for the neighborhoods and city at large, when should the city step in and contribute? Henry, how does the city of Los Angeles deal with this issue? 
Um, I know it, for the Los Angeles ordinance, buildings that meet a certain requirement do qualify for some percentage of reimbursement of that cost. Um, there's also, for example, the California Earthquake Authority. They provide basically what are vouchers to help with the retrofit costs of these uh, cripple wall buildings. Let's talk about incentives now. Coming from a homeowner's perspective, not knowing much about the codes that go into their home, what could potentially help me understand the impacts of resilience? There's the building rating system that was developed by the U.S. Resiliency Council. And the great thing about that is it provides uh, owners and users of building with information on how the building is likely to perform um, sort of in metrics that they can relate to, right? So how much is it going to cost to repair the building? How long is the building going to be usable? So I think the metrics are based on um, things that non-experts can understand, but the methods that go behind them are fairly rigorous. So this is another way that um, we could incentivize enhanced resilience systems. So basically by attaching them to these types of building ratings. Enhancing resilience systems, that's the way to go. It will make resilience more desirable to the consumers, and hopefully it will make the benefits of the resilience movement clear. So what we're doing is we're saying, let's take, say, the city of Los Angeles, and let's say we want to have uh, a specific resilience target, not for individual buildings, but for the entire city. Let's say we want to have this this 95% number that you mentioned that San Francisco is targeting, or, or what if we want a certain percentage of housing to be back within 90 days? What does that mean in terms of seismic design parameters? So how does this impact performance-based design? Do the objectives change? We're starting to get a little bit more sophisticated in terms of using optimization that acknowledges the fact that you sort of have a spatial distribution of buildings that are going to be seeing different uh, shaking intensities, it's really getting at this idea of developing resilience-based performance standards. The objective starts not at the building level, but at the level of the community, at the level of the city, and that directly informs sort of how you design things. This is a whole different way of looking at this problem. Not just the landlord, not just the tenants, but the whole system. Why don't more people know about this? How can we better educate the community? I really see the evolution of structural engineering, especially um, in California. Structural engineers over time are starting to have more meaningful conversations with society. If you think about structural engineers and the sort of way we, we looked at things and quantified things, it was all based on metrics where we can talk with ourselves, right? We have these great conversations with ourselves. And then came the advent of performance-based engineering where we start saying, okay, we actually need to start having conversations with the people that own and use these buildings, right? So we started thinking about, okay, things like immediate occupancy, life safety. And now we're at the point where we're now talking about resilience, right? Where it's now, it's not just about one building, but it's about the communities that these buildings support. We've sort of opened up that conversation with the broader society. And so that's something I'm really excited about. And that's the message that I actually try to get across to my students how do you start these meaningful conversations in the class setting? You obviously want to be an expert at all of the theory and all of the knowledge that we're trying to pass on to the students. But more importantly, you want to understand the implications of what you're doing beyond just the calculations and the drawings and beyond even just the building or structure that you're developing. These buildings and, and other types of systems that we develop have really broad implications 
to just the basic functionality of any society. A step towards the future. It's good to get the younger generation of structural engineers like myself to learn more about the importance of resilience as we begin to enter the workforce. How has this broader view impacted your students' understanding of resilience? That's the type of message that I try to try to send. In fact, I have a I'm not going to mention his name, but I have a graduating student who took my class on performance-based earthquake engineering where we start talking about some of these issues. And one of the things he said, which I consider the highest compliment, he said, uh, you helped me discover my why, right? Um, and, and that to me was, I mean, as, as a teacher um, and someone who's trying to impart knowledge to students, it's, it's the highest compliment I could receive. And it's all tied to sort of this ongoing conversation that structural engineers are, are having with society, right? And it's evolving over the years. And I'm excited to see where it's going to head. Henry brought up some good points about how landlords, tenants, communities, and cities, and even states are all interconnected when it comes to resilience. Yes, and Henry also brought up some good points about incentives. California just passed a law that'll help landlords shoulder the cost of retrofitting multifamily buildings. A lot's changed in this field, even in the short time since the Resilience Advantage first aired. But that's a story for another episode. Cool. So who's going to be our next interview? Janelle Maffei would be a good follow-up to Henry's interview. She's a structural engineer and has been the chief mitigation officer for the California Earthquake Authority since 2011. She has a lot of insight about how we can really push for resilience, especially in the residential space. Great, looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Henry Burton and his research on enhancing seismic resilience, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into the Resilience Advantage interview with Janiel Maffei, the Chief Mitigation Officer for the California Earthquake Authority. 